being a Kiwi sports fan is a bit punishing at the moment. Ironically, being a fan of the Kiwis, the rugby league team wasn't so tough this weekend. Those guys blitzed the Kangaroos by 30 points, but the Black Caps, those Black Caps, oh, an outstanding total undone by the rain and some brutal boundary hitting from Pakistan. Well, unfortunately, rain has curtailed what looked like a magnificent game of cricket in store, and the players shook hands around about seven or eight minutes ago, and it is Pakistan who have uh, managed a miraculous, a fantastic, a brilliant victory here. That means that despite our amazing start at the Cricket World Cup, even a win in Thursday's final pool game against Sri Lanka might not be enough to seal a semi-final spot. Why? Why does everything have to be so hard? Okay, let's try and put that behind us for a little bit because there's plenty going on in today's show. Just with me today, by the way, because Imo's got the lurgy. Oh, this is a little glimpse into the uh, behind the curtain of how the newsable production process works. You'll hear Imo's voice later in the show because we recorded an interview late last week. But anyway, kia ora. This is Newsable, I'm Jess, and this is what's worth talking about. Mike King is in to talk about teenagers' mental health as a new survey finds it's the single biggest issue facing high schools. We've been playing Weir's Winston all week. Now he's everywhere. The New Zealand First Leader showed up at Saturday's Diwali celebrations, then popped up to launch his party's Port Waikato by-election campaign. But what does it all mean for coalition talks? One of New Zealand's most high-profile cold cases is back in the spotlight with a new murder trial starting today. And rescued Britain's loneliest sheep saved after two years of isolation. All that coming up here in a moment on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz support. A new survey shows supporting students with their mental health has become the number one issue for four out of every five secondary schools. According to the Council for Educational Research, principals say schools have become the first port of call for many kids facing mental health issues. And while most have plans for identifying and helping students in need, schools themselves need more support coping with that responsibility. To talk about this, we've got the founder of I Am Hope, Mike King, who's delivered literally hundreds of talks in schools the length of Aotearoa. Kia ora, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us on Usable. Kia ora. So is this your experience too, Mike, that school was often the first port of call for these kind of issues being picked up? Absolutely right. But uh, a lot of schools, they don't have the capacity to deal with the issue. And one of the major problems that kids have is the lack of choice. Most schools may only have one or two counsellors in there. However, not every counsellor suits every child, so the model of care needs to change. Paint me, Mike, the ideal scenario for what would happen if a teenager expressed mental health issues at school. I'll use an example. Uh, In 2022, uh, the Ministry of Health allocated $44 million to deliver 100,000 counselling sessions a year for four years, uh, which is $110 a session. Now, their idea of doing that was to get counsellors into schools. In year one, they managed to deliver only 9,600 sessions, that is less than 10%, at a cost of $4.66 million, $486 a session. And in the 10 months this year, we have delivered 15,000 sessions to high school students at a cost of 
$2.25 million. So we can double, triple the capacity that they can, and we have a wider variety of councillors. If I could just take us back to the survey again. So it seems like the focus on mental health has actually grown in these last few years. So in 2018, 66% of principals said that mental health with the, amongst their students was the number one issue. Now it's up to 80% of principals. Mm-hmm. So is that because the, the need is growing or is it more awareness, do you think? A bit of both. Because they, none of these services collect data, they don't know what the problems are with the kids. We've just done our latest uh, data dump and what we've discovered is anxiety is uh, underpins all mental health issues. The majority of kids, the major stressor is anxiety, and anxiety leads to other issues. For example, 69% of kids who are presenting with anger issues, the base start point was anxiety. 89% of young people with eating disorders started with anxiety. So we you know we really do need to understand what our kids are going through and and then plan from there. Mike, this might be a loaded question, but why is school kind of the first port of call as we're saying for this and not parents? The number one reason kids give us for not uh, seeking help is because they're worried about what other people will think, say or do. And the number one reason kids don't go to their parents is because I don't want to hurt them. Mum and dad work so hard for, for me and I can't now go and tell them this is how I'm feeling. So this is the so-called selfish generation who are more concerned about our feelings, our you know parents' feelings, than they are about their own mental well-being. But if you give them the option to talk to someone, they definitely want to talk. That's point one. Point two, we have a system based on crisis. In other words, only 2% of kids will get the help that they need. So 100 kids line up at A&E with mental health problems. Only two of them are going to be seen. So when you build a system on crisis, you get more crisis. And unfortunately, Te Whatu Order and all these other agencies, even parents, see counselling as a crisis situation. Well, our kids don't want to see uh, counsellors when they're in crisis. They want to see a counsellor to stay well. It's like the gym has changed. The gym used to be a rehabilitation place, and now it's a place where you proactively go to stay well. And, Mike, while I've got you, the the National Party have promised a new mental health minister. Is that something that you're quite keen on? 100%. But the problem you've got, the Minister of Mental Health cannot allocate funds to organisations that work. All he can do is say, here is $10 million for face-to-face counselling, and the bureaucrats decide where that money goes. And if you look at their track record, it's not that great because they keep funding the same organisations and the results keep getting worse. There are some amazing community services out there that are running on the smell of an oily rag and they're in it because they care about our young people. My message to the Ministry of Health, to the Tifatu Order and to the Ministry of Education is put your pride to one side and think about our children. 
Mike King, mental health advocate and founder of I Am Hope. Thank you so much for having a chat here on Usable. Thank you very much. Have you checked out our Insta recently? There is a lot of fun and games going on over there, including our secret word game, which we're going to be playing again this week. If you're confused, you don't need to be. Just search Newsable NZ and you'll be in on the secret. And who doesn't love knowing secrets? I got so many fake calls before the election and after it, all day and all night, over and over again. But you're waiting for the one call that might give you this critical piece of information that you need in politics. And that's why I answered them more. But this one here, I thought this has got to be fake, and so I didn't answer it. It wasn't a call, it was a text. Now, he has been elusive since election night, but Winston Peters returned to the public eye with two appearances over the weekend. On Saturday, he attended Diwali celebrations in Auckland. Then yesterday afternoon, he launched New Zealand's first campaign in the Port Waikato by-election. But did we learn anything about the coalition talks from all this? Here to explain all is stuff political correspondent Bridie Whitson. Kia ora, Bridie. Thank you for coming on. Kia ora. No, thank you. Now, let's kick off with this campaign launch yesterday. So, Mr Peters, he gave... I mean, I watched a little bit of it, a pretty lengthy speech, took questions from the audience, and then he left a few minutes for reporters. Now, he's pretty tight-lipped about any coalition talks and kind of shut any of those questions down. But he did say something kind of random about communicating with David Seymour. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, so we understand David Seymour had tried to contact Winston Peters a number of times and had not heard back. But Winston Peters yesterday said that He did get a text from David, but he thought it was fake. He said he was getting so many calls before and after the election and texts that it was just hard to tell what was real and what was fake. And he thought thought the text was fake. And he also said there was uh, no name in the message, so he didn't know who, who it belonged to and that he will explain that all to David when he meets him in person. Okay, he's just really aware of scammers. That's really good to hear. Did, I mean, is the fact that he acknowledged that a message suggests a conciliatory tone, what do you think progress is being made here between these three? It is a little bit hard to to imagine that, that there is, so they have such a long history of, of really disliking each other. Even in September, David Seymour said that Winston Peters was the, the least trustworthy person in New Zealand politics. You may remember he said, you know, we're not going to sit around the cabinet table with this clown. So it's, it's hard to sort of see things have moved in a, you know, really quickly since then. It kind of feels like Winston Peters is sort of poking him or, you know, take, taking the mickey a little bit here. So, yeah, it is hard to see. There is absolutely also no love lost between Winston Peters and the media either. I mean, he took various cracks at the media throughout the speech in the question time today, and he bristled at questions at Diwali yesterday, most notably actually from a friend of Newsable, Glenn O'Connell. Is is this a new thing? Absolutely not. A big part of his shtick is sort of painting himself as this outsider and and underdog, and a big element of that is, you know, having this uh, sort of cantankerous approach to the media as if, you know, they're not covering me properly and, Mm. you know, they're all out to get me sort of thing. So that was coming through really strong in his sort of 40-minute-plus speech um, to launch Casey Costello's uh, by-election uh, bid for Port Waikato. So, and it and it also does really well with his supporters. So it's very on-brand for, for mm. Winston Peters. And what's going to happen this week? Can you tell me a little bit about what, if anything, we're likely to see? Yeah, so this, this sort of seems like it's going to be the crunch week. There mm. has been talk uh, since Friday's election result that, you know, National Act New Zealand First could potentially have this all wrapped up by, you know, the end of the week. So uh, Christopher Luxon is heading to San Francisco on the 11th for a sort of regional economic forum uh, called APEC. So he really wants to go to that. He has said he is prepared to not go, that his big focus is, is sort of staying in New Zealand and sorting this all out 
Winston Peters, I understand, really does want him to go, though, because um, he's obviously a big foreign affairs, you know, is hugely interested in that. So it seems like it's going to be a real crucial week for coalition talks. People are mostly going to be around the Auckland area. Uh, Winston Peters says he's meeting with his caucus this week and then they're going to work out some fundamental things and then take that further, he said, and when asked, you know, what taking that further looks like, well, you know, will he be meeting with ACT and uh, National in person? He joked, no, I'll be meeting with Pierre Trudeau in Canada, uh, which seemed to be a bit of a joke about Justin Trudeau. I think he meant Justin Trudeau instead oh, of Oh, God. He's yeah, so about 30 bit... years behind. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so everything will be in Auckland, but yeah, it could be a really, really big week for New Zealand politics. Let's see if Christopher Luxon makes that plane come the 11th then. Awesome stuff. Bryder Wooden, thank you so much for your time and best luck for this week. Thank you. Still to come, the most newsable story to ever make the news. A lonely sheep has been rescued from the bottom of a cliff in the Scottish Highlands. And I know this isn't very patriotic, but this guy makes Shrek the Sheep look positively well-groomed. To make sure you never miss a sheep-related tale, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. It'll help other people flock to us. Hey, Get it? Flock? Sheep? Six months after the first trial was abandoned, the two people accused of the 1995 murder of Angela Blackmore will go on trial again today in the Christchurch High Court. A jury heard one week's worth of evidence back in May before Justice Cameron Mander made the decision to abort the trial due to new material coming to hand, which both the Crown and Defence needed the opportunity to review. Arrests in the cold case that stretched more than two decades followed a stuff investigation and a $100,000 reward that brought forward new evidence and more than 50 tips to police. To bring us up to speed is the press's Jake Kenny. Kia ora, Jake. Nice to have you here. Hi, team. Good to be here. Firstly, Jake, can you give us a bit of background to Angela Blackmore's murder and how two people are on trial for it almost 30 years later? Angela was murdered in a, in a fairly gruesome manner uh, inside her own home in Wanoni Christchurch on the 17th of August 1995. Shortly after a pizza was delivered to her home, um, the murder went unresolved until, yes, as you mentioned, the staff investigation and paired with police's reopening of the case and a $100,000 reward coming forward before an individual was arrested, charged and eventually plead guilty to her murder. And so that individual was Jeremy Powell. We've got these two other people on trial now? Yes, it didn't make it to the end of his own trial. He, he eventually pleaded guilty to that charge. And as a result of that, two further charges were laid also for murder. Jeremy Powell himself will give evidence at some stage in the course of the trial. It must be unusual for a case to come to trial so long after the murder. Absolutely. And I suppose that's a, it's a little bit of a challenge for everyone involved in the room to, to kind of, you know, witnesses that are called, they have to recount from memory mm. that has been uh, almost three decades ago. And, and that's certainly part of the challenge and something we're not quite used to uh, in the court process. And for this first trial to be abandoned kind of a weekend, what do we know about why that happened, Jake? So it's basically, as you said before, um, we, we got about a week into the trial and some new material came to light that all of the lawyers in the room had to had to have the opportunity to review that they didn't have. So while he was reluctant to do so, uh, Justice Mandit was, was basically in a position where he had no other choice but to abandon the trial. Obviously, you know, the system in place is that they don't want to do these things um, and they only do so if they basically feel like they have no other option. And it, and it came to that point. Um, the trial was abandoned so that so that, that information could be reviewed. And so here we go again. Here we go again. Indeed, Jake Kenny, thank you so much for bringing us up to speed. And no doubt we will check in with you as this trial continues. Thank you, team.
I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. I don't want to be held to account well, no, on I, what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo about gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, tagline there. That, that, I think that it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah we're, I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing iffy in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts. Now, if there was ever a story to start your Monday off right, it is this one. Britain's loneliest sheep has been rescued by a group of farmers in the Scottish Highlands. And because I want to share the story far and wide, I'm bringing in Newsable's resident Brit, producer Chris. Kia ora, Chris. Kia ora, Jess. How are you? Kia ora. Did you ever hear in your, you know, I don't think it made it to the UK necessarily, but have you ever heard of Shrek the Sheep? Well, I have because I was living in New Zealand at the time. There you go. That was the mid noughties wasn't it? 2004 or something? It was. It was about the biggest story of the mid-90s to come out of New yeah. Zealand. But a lot of sceptics reckon Trek, um, he managed to actually escape capture for about six years, was actually secretly a, a pet sheep. But there is no way that this is the case with this poor, poor girl, is there, Chris? Can you tell us a little bit about who, who they're calling Fiona? Fiona, yes. Uh, she was stranded at the foot of some very remote very steep cliffs for at least two years in Scotland. Um, and for listeners who haven't been to Scotland, it's pretty rugged once you get out of the main population centres. Kind of think Central Otago and the Alps, that kind of thing. Mm. You know, lots of big rock faces. Anyway, it's thought that Fiona was desperate to be rescued as she would call out to anyone sailing past, which wasn't often because it was a real remote part of Scotland. Oh, poor Fiona. I know. No one really knows how she ended up there, but a rescue attempt was thought to be too complex until a group of five farmers put their heads together and with the use of what they called heavy equipment managed to haul her up the steep slope. Two of them stayed at the top to operate a winch while three others were lowered 250 metres down the cliff. 250 metres? How did Fiona fall 250 metres and survive? I don't know. Maybe she turned up in a boat. Maybe. And here's a clip of what they said after the rescue. That's it for this one. Britain's loneliest sheep is lonely no more. She she has lots of friends here. Major operation. Cheers, sheep fans. Now, I did read that she's going to live out the rest of her sheepy days at a farm park, where she'll never be lonely anymore, and I'm sure she'll get lots of pets from all those eager Scottish Highland sheep farm-going people. What a good news story. A very good news story. It actually reminds me uh, at the time a friend asked me to round up some sheep. I said, how many? They said 97. I said 100. (laughs) <laughs> that took me so long to get Round up. If you didn't like it, don't get bent out of sheep. Oh, Chris, the first and last time potentially you're on the show with jokes like that. All's wool oh. that ends wool. Goodbye. Oh, okay, fade him down, fade him down. Oh, no, he's the producer. Someone else fade him down. That is Newsable for today. I'm Jessica McCarthy. We'll be back tomorrow with hopefully less sheep jokes and a bit more news. If you like this podcast, please support our work. Visit stuff.co.nz slash support. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. 
You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.